Hey everyone, welcome to the Limitless Good podcast. In today's episode, we have Ani Sanyal. He is the co-founder of Kolkata Chai Co. And also he is a serial entrepreneur. His mission is to bring the authentic taste of Indian chai to people in the States and eventually around the world. It was such a fun conversation. And without further ado, Ani. Yeah. Hey, Ani. Thanks for taking the time. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, guys. No, thank you for having me. I uh, appreciate it. So you you mentioned you spent most of your life in New York and you grew up in USA to an immigrant to immigrant parents. You also had a few companies. Uh could you walk us through your entrepreneurial journey before you started Kolkata Joy Company? Yeah, I think my entrepreneurial journey started very young, you know, being a son, eldest son of first generation parents, you go through all of the, you know, difficulties of kind of finding the American dream if you will and for my family there was a lot of financial insecurity and you know watching my father get laid off and kind of always having this massive insecurity around work and you know providing and so for me uh I think I was 12 14 years old where I was like I know I'm never going to work for somebody else I didn't know how I was going to get there I just knew you know it wasn't going to be me and so that was a difficult you know journey to just explain to my parents that there's no chance I'll ever be a doctor or a lawyer or a banker because it just doesn't philosophically align with who I am and what I believe in and and you know something that's been in my spirit since I was a child um I was your quintessential lemonade stand kid so I would you know literally have lemonade stands when I was younger uh the first business that I started was a independent record label when I was 16 years old with a friend of mine in high school and we would uh create and pr- produce music we would distribute it on iTunes we would produce merch we would sell CDs and you know we would build this kind of independent um music operation if you will and uh I spent the first 10 years of my quote unquote you know adult life from 16 to 26 fully immersed in that business and so that um that business took me around the world uh, I lived in Tokyo I was on tour as an artist in Japan I got to score a Bollywood film and lived in India for months and weeks touring and working with uh producers and people there I you know toured the US I worked with a lot of artists before they became you know kind of big artists like Wiz Khalifa and Lupe Fiasco and all these other artists and uh made very little money for for 10 years because the music industry is very kind of exploitive and more importantly we just you know we weren't a big enough operation to you know really have that be a financially a uh, viable thing for me but um that's where i learned creativity that's where i learned you know the power of content how to build community and really the most important thing i learned in those 10 years was taking an idea and and bringing it to life and knowing kind of all the ups and downs that it takes as an entrepreneur to do that you know you you know i used to have these experiences where we would write songs in this tiny little you know bedroom in bushwick and you know there's mice running around and you're paying you know 500 bucks a month each in rent and it's it's nasty right and then 6 months later you're in Japan and you're performing this song that you recorded in this crazy bushwick apartment and and that to me was the most powerful feeling you know and so um I chased that for a long time um I met a lot of great people um I managed an artist named Anik Khan today and Anik I met through you know music and and that's out of town and so um I transitioned out of music in my mid 20s and uh my brother and I started a, a marketing and creative agency and this was again kind of taking the things that we knew and understood from culture so whether it was music whether it was art whether it was you know um 
literature and just the things that we were into. How do you help businesses kind of modernize and, and adapt to the digital age, right? So telling stories online, uh, customer acquisition, growth, paid media, these were all the things that we would touch. And then through that process, uh, we realized that there was very few, literally no brands at that time. This is 2016, 17, 18. There were no brands that were speaking to any type of audience that wasn't your kind of high, you know, high earning millennial audience. Everything looked the same, you know, and I don't want to name names to knock on these companies. These, these are multi-million dollar companies, but you know, away luggage or, you know, this brand or that brand, like it all looked the same, you know? And so my brother and I really had a, we had a hunch that there was an opportunity to do something outside of like the traditional kind of venture backed, you know, um, mass market thing. And, uh, chai was something that came very organically, you know, to us. Uh, my brother spent a month traveling India and he was like, I'm, I'm going to tea estates. And he was kind of on his own, random trip which you know that's very much who he is he's the artist he's the creative guy he's the chef he's he's all the way out there and then i'm a lot more you know type a you know just making sure things get done and that's that's our dynamic but um Kolka the chai was born out of my brother's kind of you know creative pursuit um started with him making chai for his roommates uh we we then made chai for 15 20 people at a little private you know, a uh, kitchen in Brooklyn. And then that turned into farmer's markets and to pop-up shops and to our first uh, retail store in 2019. And this is a very long intro to say today I sell chai <laughs> full-time, um, which is something that my parents still uh, are very confused about, but, you know, they they are starting to understand the power of what we're doing. There's so much to unpack and I'll definitely get back to chai, but I want to talk about your tra career trajectory. So you were writing music in Bushwick. Um, actually, I used to live right next to Bushwick in Myrtle Ave. And from Bushwick to like go to Japan, live in India, work with people in Bollywood to creating a marketing agency. And something that really fascinated me was when I was researching you, I saw that you also had some big clients like Hillary Clinton and other big names. So I wanted to understand first, how did you learn marketing, like one-on-one? And second, how were you able to get clients? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I went to NYU for uh, finance and economics. That was my degree, quote unquote. Uh, didn't spend a lot of time at NYU doing either of those things. I was in New York City, you know, just learning um, what really moves people, you know, what moves culture, meaning, you know, I remember waiting in line to get a signed CD from Kanye West in like 2017 or something. You know, I remember standing outside for sneaker drops. I remember, you know, freestyling in ciphers in, in, in Washington Square Park. I mean, all these things that to me, I'm answering the question. I'll get there in a second. Um, to me, I've always been obsessed with kind of what moves consumerism, like what moves people to actually want to buy something. You know, to, growing up, didn't have a lot. I remember, you know, Nike, you know, like Jordans, uh, Vans sneakers, or just these iconic, you know, Levi jeans, these things that we grew up with, starter jackets, whatever. They just seemed so unattainable, right? There were hundreds of dollars. And at that time, that was completely uh, out of the question. But I just, I remember that feeling of like, why do I want this so bad? 
And I think that kind of led me to do a lot of just real world kind of learning around what makes brands powerful. And so I've been obsessed with studying, um, whether it's an artist, whether it's a brand, whether it's a, a collaboration, you know, I'm, I'm a sneakerhead. I've been collecting sneakers since I was 14 years old. And like, why, you know, why does, why does an adult man need 150 pairs of sneakers? He probably doesn't. Right. But there's this, there's this thing about it. It's a, it's a form of self-expression. It's a creative outlet. It's the way colors and the way stance and all these things essentially that, um, I've just been obsessed with for a very long time. So I think when answering the question, how I learned marketing, I think it was just being a sponge and being obsessed with figuring out the why behind all these things that kind of moved popular culture. Um, and I think when you do that, you start to understand, you know, you guys have probably been through this before, you know, you'll discover an artist before everyone else does, you know, you'll discover a brand before everyone else does. And it's like, how many times can you do that before you start to understand, like, maybe I actually have a knack at this thing that I'm, you know, kind of informally studying. And so for me, it was just like being a sponge and then executing, um, things that were way outside of my weight class, for example, um, you know, I was the first person that brought Wiz Khalifa to a, do a show in New York City. Um, and to this wow. day, you know, him and his, you know, his manager and I, like, if when someone brings it up, like, it's still a thing that they're like, oh, yeah, that, you know, Ani did that. But that didn't happen because I had any experience or whatever. I just knew that he was, a, you know, rising artist. I knew there was people every day I talked to that loved his music. And I knew that no one in New York was like willing to bring him here because the promoters were all focused on whatever EDM act or whatever, getting off topic. But the idea of like just being obsessed with and then taking big swings at trying to do things based on your knowledge and having the confidence to know like, I might screw this up, but I'm going to really, really work hard to put it all together and bring the right people in. And, and just like, I will not fail at doing this one thing. I think when you do that multiple times, you start to stack, you know, bricks, so to speak. Um, and the second question of kind of how we got clients, it, I'm going to try to keep this answer short. Um, getting clients and kind of being a new you know, agency or company is a very difficult task. I think for me, we used to always try to create work you know, for our existing clients or just the things that we were doing. We always said, hey, let's create a certain excellence for the work that we do so that if people do talk about it or people are kind of sharing it, it becomes its own kind of sales vehicle. And that's really tough when you're an agency model because you're working with so many clients and just volume is a part of your, you know, how you stay alive. But um, it was it was really that. It was like putting out some campaigns and some, you know, having some of those hits, so to speak, that ended up getting the right, you know, the attention of people. And so um, I remember some work that I did um, with some artists led to me getting connected to a the Asian American super PAC that was responsible for a lot of Hillary Clinton and 2016 election stuff. And then they ended up hiring our agency to run her entire uh, kind of Asian American outreach. Um, and so I just remember that was one of the craziest, you know, experiences of my life, but it just came out of just doing the best work you can without cutting corners and without having expectations and just really trying to, you know, set the bar higher every time. So with the marketing agency, right, when you first started off, like, were you helping them with videos for social media or managing their pages? Um, like, what were the uh, parts of marketing that you were focused on um, when you first started? 
Yeah, tactically, we were helping companies acquire more customers or users or whatever their KPI was. How we did that was a combination of um, creating content, whether it was video, photo, graphics, whatever, like understanding what type of content would move the needle for them. Um, And then in certain instances, creating campaigns. So if it was, you know, an activation or some type of celebrity partnership or whatever it was, um, again, finding ways to reach new audiences and reach new customers. And then the last part of it being paid media, driving marketing and advertising dollars behind the content and the campaigns to acquire and uh, to, to bring in sales. Interesting. So like you use the dollars at the end, but you use the other marketing channels early on. That's correct. Yeah. And then used the dollars to drive that, those graphics or content to then eventually acquire the customers. Yep. I think uh, a lot of people try to do it the other way around or just really rely on advertising and marketing dollars to move the needle. And I think, you know, even with Kolka the Chai, a big part of our advantage has just been always kind of investing in organic community and organic content and, you know, just keeping things like simple, human to human. How can you, you know, give someone something to talk about? Because if you do that and you keep doing that, it's going to grow. And I think a lot of brands skip those steps and just say, hey, I'm going to go straight to spending, you know, hundred thousand dollars a month on Facebook. And it's like, well, there's a lot of context that you should create before you do something like that. Totally. You brought up really good points that we want to unpack one after the other. I mean, I, I grew up in Mumbai, you know, and just like every other household in, in India, I also grew up with the smell of freshly brewed chai every morning. And that's something I missed when I came to India, came to America. You know, I couldn't find chai, find chai on the streets. I say, if you walk in Manhattan, every other block has a coffee shop you know it's very easy to find bubble tea as well but it's difficult to find chai and good chai so definitely i'm a customer but how did you go how did you start from the ideation to having pop-ups to then eventually opening a store in manhattan yeah i think you know i think the point that you mentioned is exactly the genesis for us as well you know you grow up with something that is so important to your narrative and you come to the most you know epic city in the world and you can't find it that that there's got to be something you know that you could solve there um so in terms of tactically building the business what we did was we would use social media to create kind of interest and and um tell stories around chai and then have a physical activation to bring people to that place and then during those activations, whether it was a farmer's market or a pop-up or whatever it was, we would have, you know, like a photographer going around and taking photos and essentially giving people like a chance to see themselves in a way that they felt comfortable in with something that was from their culture where they could feel proud about it. But it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like to go drink chai, you have to like wear a full like Punjabi and Kurta set and like, oh, I'm Indian and I'm drinking chai. You know, it wasn't like this like over sensationalization of that, right? It was like, hey, you can dress how you're dressed and come as you are. And chai can be a part of the routine the same way you mentioned bubble tea is or third wave coffee is. And it was it was really kind of modernizing and normalizing um, something that, you know, we, when we grew up on that side of the world uh, is is every day for us. And so we started really small and i think one thing that i can i can look back on now and i can laugh about it it wasn't necessarily as discernible when it was happening is that we started small 
without any expectations of building a unicorn or anything silly like that. It was like, it, it was like, Hey, if we go serve a hundred people next week at a pop-up, can we make sure that everyone loves the chai? Can we make sure that we can, you know, capture some content from it? Can we make sure that we, um, can have people share and talk about it? Like it was just very small milestones. And those hundred people that we said, all right, well, we did a hundred. Can we do 300, you know, and can we do 500 people? And it was these kind of tangible, small scale, unscalable things that we just did for 18 months, really, uh, before we realized there's really a big audience here and we should explore, you know, what retail could be. But I think that's my, you know, that's my perspective now that I, I can have because we took, you know, I tell people we took the stairs, you know, we didn't take the elevator. I think it's very popular nowadays to want to take the elevator, right? Because you want to go straight to the penthouse in a couple minutes. Who doesn't? You know, like, of course, we all want that. Taking the stairs is tedious, but you learn and you, you're able to actually become exactly. stronger, right? And build a real business. And so, um, and, and on the other side of that, I think there's so much luck and kind of fortune and, and all of that involved in these kind of things where, yeah, I mean, a lot of people were probably serving chai and pop-ups at some point and like they didn't, they couldn't build it into what we built. Right. So there's an element of luck and just timing involved that I have to acknowledge, but uh, we were very deliberate and very slow in the first um, year and change of the business. I really like the point that you mentioned that you were taking the stairs and not the elevator. And what I wanted to understand is like, even with your marketing business, you had mentioned that before you put in the dollars, you have to build a community and what, you master, I feel, is building that community. And with Kolkata Chai, like the when you opened the physical store, you guys had around thousand people lined up to get the chai. And something that we struggle with, and a lot of people who are starting a business struggle with, is building that community. So, how can one build a community? Like, what are the steps they can take to build a community like you have built over and over? Yeah, I think, I mean, great question. I think a lot of, you know, brands and kind of both startups and, and incumbent brands are trying to figure this out right now. I think community building with the expectation that you're going to eventually sell something to the people is not the right way to do it. And I think that's the kind of, that's the lowest hanging fruit, right? Oh, I'm going to build community. I'm going to have a um, pizza and beer night and you know, people are going to come and I'm going to pitch them a SaaS product after like, all right, well, you know, no wonder that's that community didn't take off. It wasn't really that authentic to, to begin with. And so for us, um, that was the first thing was building community meant doing something with no expectation or no ROI. And that's really, really tough to do, especially at scale. But that's what we did. Um, what that means is, you know, offering free chai at pop-ups, you know, we had to incur all those costs but then also you're having um, a content team running around and, you know, kind of like creating these moments from your pop-ups and you also have to incur that cost. And it was just like, how do we make people proud of where they're from and just kind of feel good about themselves without any expectation? I think that was step one. Um, and then how we scale that community, I think, was by constantly listening to what people want and then figuring out how to deliver that with a high level of taste. I think the thing about taste gets lost, especially kind of in first generation immigrant businesses or just, you know, 
basically we are always in a rush to kind of scale or move fast instead of moving tastefully and doing things that people actually want to see. So, you know, recently we launched a gulab jamun, you know, latte, uh, and, and we tapped, um, Sirat Saini, who's a, you know, pretty popular influencer and creator to be a face, to be the face of that. And then, you know, we, we brought in a creative director and all these, you know, photographer, and it was just a very tasteful, uh, campaign but it was for one small drink you know it was almost like we knew that there was more power in the community being like wow i've actually never seen like a gulab jamun like latte be turned into something that's tasteful and cool like this is fun this makes me feel excited to be south asian or to be immigrant or to be whatever oh and this brand coca the chai did it cool i don't know anything about them let me learn a little bit more about them that was the only expectation. I wasn't going to sell enough gulab jamun lattes to pay for the investment on that campaign. But I think that's what community is. It's it's giving people a mirror to see themselves in an authentic way without any expectation of selling something to them, you know, down the road. If you don't mind sharing, how much did you invest in that campaign? Uh, great question. Um, that campaign was probably between seven and 10,000. Okay. Hmm. Okay. And that was from your perspective, just to create curiosity, you got like it. for yeah. people to just want to learn more about what it is, not even like with an expectation that I want them to buy it. Curiosity and excitement. Yeah. Again, mm -hmm. for the community. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Early on, you mentioned that the taste in restaurants that are driven by the first generation immigrants is kind of lost because they're probably more in the survival zone and being there is tough to be creative. Um. So how did you iterate on the taste? It's a great question. Um, so I think, you know, taste is funny because it's, it's the actual, the way your food tastes. And then there's also the tastefulness of, of the brand and kind of that side. So I'm not the chef. My brother is. I'm not going to speak on the taste of the product, but I can speak on the tastefulness of, of the brand. Uh, <clears throat> I think the one thing that, the first thing that we did was we didn't set out to build a South Asian brand or something that was just for brown people. That felt limiting. That felt also doing a disservice to the culture because if more people, if new people don't discover a product or, you know, a, a service and it just stays within the same community, then that's not really pushing your culture forward. You know, that's just kind of, you know, doing the same things in different ways. And so the first thing we did from a taste level was um, allowing ourselves to be honest about the things we were influenced by. So my brother and I, uh, just a very, I think, wide range of influences. Um, yeah, sure. We grew up with Bollywood music in the house, but, you know, we are big hip hop fans. You know, I grew up playing and watching a ton of sports. Um, I'm, my brother and I are both fairly, you know, into uh, just like fashion and, and streetwear and understanding, you know, clothing. And obviously I'm a sneakerhead. And so, and then, you know, I were both voracious readers and, you know, our father, you know, kind of set the tone for what intellectual, you know, consumption kind of looks like. And so I say that to say we have a wide range of tastes ourselves. And I think we were not shy to kind of let that shine in the brand, you know, and let that kind of be a part of driving the taste. So if you walk into, you know, a Coca the Chai Cafe, you'll see, you know, cassette tapes of, they'll say or whatever those are my childhood cassette tapes you know like those are the ones that i bought when i had a cassette player and had to rewind it with a pencil like those are just moments that you know were important to us that we felt like hey this is going to be something that other people can relate to um that's not the same 
and no offense to anybody, but tiger painting on the wall or you know how now there's like the what is it every trendy indian restaurant you go to there's like a sultry you know bollywood actress type <laughs> yep. on the wall it's like you know it's just like that's not even like we go to india and we don't even see that there like that's not even a thing that we do why would we do that here like that it's just it doesn't feel tasteful it feels cheap and i think for us it was just like stay away from that at all costs you know like um there's a very poignant piece that my brother wrote on our first blog post ever, which was basically like, he was like, do not put an old Indian man in glasses and like in sunglasses and just be like, this is like modern Indian cuisine, you know, like that. And that's a lot, what a lot of people were doing in New York at that time too, with all due respect. And so I think that, so my point is um, you can't do the thing that's the most obvious and in front of you because everyone's doing that. Again, you have to think about, What's the next level, but also be open to being, hey, what is like, what are my influences? What are the influences that are in my community, in my group? How do I, how do I broaden the, the scope of what we're doing? And so I think today, you know, if you were to sit outside of Kolkata Chai for 10 minutes and study the foot traffic, it would be 50-50 between, you know, South Asian folks and non-South Asian people. And I think that's really important to me because that shows that we've widened, you know, the spectrum of who feels comfortable relating to the brand. It's not always about just speaking to the same people all the time. Yeah, well, that's true. And we notice that we go there often and like, you're absolutely right. I appreciate that. See, and I'm, I'm not lying for all the pod, the potters out there. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I want to talk about marketing. I think you guys do a great job knowing, I don't know if it's like knowingly or unknowingly, but you know, you've been mentioned in Fox News, New York Times, and I see Mindy Kaling, like, loving Kolkata Chai. I see Hassan Minaj and all these incredible people uh, who idol- who we, like, look up to in our society, like, love your product, and they rave about your products. So I wanted to ask, like, how did you get that level of marketing? Hmm, great question. Um, we have never had a publicist on staff uh really ever, maybe like for one or two or three months. Um, So a lot of the things that you see, and I'm really proud when I say this, is like, it's all organic. You know, I think that's easy to say. People are like, well, like, what does that mean? You know, like, I want to do it organically. How do I do it? Um, I think there's a couple parts of that. Let me try to get to it as efficiently as possible. I think for marketing, the first thing that we do is we, again, uh, we're storytellers. You know, I think that is to me, that's what marketing is. And I think, again, a lot of people skip that step nowadays. And so the first thing is always, what story are we telling? What is compelling to our audience? Um, What do people want to hear? What's authentic to us, but also relatable? You know, it's all about the story. I think that's the first thing. I'm going to ask you one more question on that. How do you become a storyteller? How did you guys become a great storytellers? I think it's such a good question, but it's so tough for me to say definitively, but for me, I can say it was by studying other storytellers um, and and consuming stories. So, you know, hip hop music for me was a huge North Star. There's a lot of stories in rap that, you know, whether it's a Jay-Z or a Nas or a J. Cole or whatever, like you're learning. You know, I tell people all the time, it's like, how tell me all that you know about, you know, XYZ artists and they'll tell you their whole, you know, biography. And you're like, how did you know that? And they're like, oh, I just listened to the music. You know, like artists are such great storytellers that 
it's almost like implicit in what they do. Um, I read a lot. I've always been, you know, since childhood, I would, you know, like elementary school, I was just in the library all summer, like a nerd. Uh, I enjoy it. I love reading and, and learning stories. And I think you absorb and study things and then you find out how to, um, you internalize it and you, you replicate it in, a, in your own kind of way. Uh, I think that's the simplest answer. I think I think especially, you know, for first generation kids and just people, you know, in our kind of community, those things are soft skills that are not praised or kind of valued, you know, and that you can't, you know, go to a Goldman Sachs interview and tell them you're a great storyteller. Like they'll get you, <laughs> you know, they'll get you out of there sooner than you could finish your story. And so um, I think that's one thing that is maybe part of the thing is like people don't really take the time to, you know, learn how to be good storytellers or actually like be vulnerable enough to say like, Hey, I want to learn how to tell stories. Like, this is what I'm going to do. You know, my dad quintessential, you know, Bengali father and, uh, used to literally, you know, slap my brother and I upside the head when we would get our, our math wrong. And like, he was just like uncompromising on math and science and hard, you know, hard skills being the way. And, um, I tried my best. And then at some point I was like, yeah, that's not who I am. I'm sorry. Like, this is just not what I know how to do. And, you know, I had to show and prove, you know, that, that I knew what I was doing, but tangentially, uh, I think it's important if you feel that like, Hey, this is what I know how to do, or I want to tell stories, like you got to commit to it. So I think marketing is storytelling at the core. Um, the second thing is content. I think there's no excuse not to learn how to leverage content in today's, you know, kind of like overwhelming um but available you know world it's like you know i've I've met so many people or artists or this or that who are like oh i don't want to put out my content i'm scared or it's not there yet and, you know and it's not there yet yeah and it becomes two three years and it was never there and you missed your window you know i think volume putting out things iterating learning what's working studying trends you know these things are all we can do it if we like all the information's out there but i think we were uncompromising with content i think if you you know, go through our YouTube. We launched like a mini documentary on YouTube around the opening of the first rest, like cafe. Like who does that? You know, like big restaurant groups with billions of dollars don't do that. Right. So it was just like really being, again, that was a story, right. That we were telling, but using, you know, content and long form, short form, this, that, whatever, just being uncompromising and, and making sure that, um, you're prioritizing that as a business. Um, so storytelling content, and I think the third thing is listening to your audience and kind of being humble enough to know that there are things you don't know or that things people want to see. And, you know, like you have to figure out how to integrate that into the stories that you're telling. Um, I think that's, that's the key thing is we, we never, um, we never assume that we knew everything or that we weren't able to take feedback. I think we've just always been really, uh, open. And, and that's, I think, what makes a good marketer. Do you have a few examples of feedback that you received from customers and you iterated on? Customer feedback is, is also tough because people will tell you everyone has every opinion in the world, right? So you have to kind of distill the ones that are actually meaningful. Uh, what we tend to do is, you know, anecdotally or just even on our customer service team, like we'll keep a log of like, hey, which inquiries or which things are coming up the most often and then do those deserve an exploration or, you know, some type of... Uh, some type of, you know, further development. Um, I'll, I'll give one piece of, you know, feedback around this that we've done is when we were first launching our, our DIY, the chai mix that we have for people to make at home, um, there was a lot of 
early kind of like, hey, how do I use this? Do I need a French press or can I do it in a microwave and all this wild stuff that sure, like the average consumer does not know how to make chai. And, you know, if you go to our website today, you'll see, you know, chai making guide and there's gifts and videos and you can either learn how to do it in three seconds or you can watch a 10 minute video and do it. But it's like, we understood that education and educating the customer was the most important thing to be able to scale the usage of the product. And so we invested a ton in like shooting videos and, you know, making it fun and movement and all these different things in that, in that one webpage so that people feel like, okay, I can make chai and I don't need to be, you know, from Bombay to do it. Uh, I can be from Minnesota, you know, and like there's a calculator in there. You can type in how many cups do you want to make? And it'll tell you how many, you know, gallons of milk you need, how many teaspoons of chai. And it's like, we're just thinking about the people who are making this and like where they're coming from. So that was one piece of, um, you know, one piece of kind of iterative uh, marketing that we did. I'm trying to think of what else we can, uh, that that's a good one to, to use for now. That's a good one. With your e-commerce business, right? First, you had a physical store. Um, did you guys decide to pivot to e-commerce because of COVID or what made you want to pivot to a completely dis- different industry? For the record, we launched our first cafe. We did have an e-commerce operation from day one, um, but it was like merch and t-shirts and mugs and it was like the unofficial side of it. But we knew that, you know, we wanted to build an omni-channel business from the beginning. So we wanted to have multiple ways of, you know, capturing revenue. Um, but to your point, it was definitely COVID that accelerated the need for the product to really, you know, be the core focus of the business. And then today, you know, about 80 to 85% of our revenue comes from e-commerce um, versus wow. brick and mortar. So it's it's the predominant kind of part of the business. And um, I think, again, how, you know, how is the world moving in terms of consumption and, you know, what, how are we you know, consuming things like how study your own behavior, but then also learning that Coca Chai as a brand meant so much to so many people. But if it's only in New York, then it doesn't. You know, we can't reach those people, and as a as a byproduct, you can't capture that revenue. So, you know, getting e commerce right, you know, figuring out figuring out our direct to consumer operation has been uh, my you know headache and and my part of the business for the last four years. And I think this year we're finally you know, um, we're moving. I mean, we're moving, you know, in a way that we're building a really significant business on that side. That's really impressive. So 85% of your revenue is from e-commerce. Yeah. Um, If you take a few steps backwards, you had a pop-up store before you had those, you know, the physical store in Manhattan. Were you profitable at that point with the pop-up stores? The pop-ups were always profitable because those were, um, created in a way where it was very hard to lose money, meaning you'd only be there for a certain amount of hours. So, you know, you're going to be able to kind of cap. It's not, you don't have rent. So your OPEX and your CAPEX is fairly, you know, um, within reason. And uh, so, yeah, those were always profitable, you know, by a lot, probably not, you know, five to 10% margin you're, you're eking out. But um, yeah, we didn't have enough money where we could lose, you know, on, on those type of things. So yeah, we always built those to be efficient. So did you, did you also have like an option to, you know, scale the pop-ups as opposed to buying a, or rather renting a physical store? Because physical store has more liabilities. Um, at that time, I think we, 
again, I don't think my brother and I were that, we just weren't that um, aware of like what the business could be. Meaning, could we have done a chai truck and traveled around the country and minimized our right. OPEX and CAPEX? Probably. Um, but Created I think- content. Right, exactly. You know, I think that, that would have been a, a very viable business model. Um, I think what we knew is that in order for chai to have its moment in this country, you needed to have it be experienced in a physical location. And that wouldn't have been possible with a truck or, you know, with a pop-up. Every pop-up we went to, you know, we'd have to put up our own decor and this and that. And, you know, there's only so many times you're going to do that till you're exhausted of it. So having that cafe location and then to your point about, you know, opening night when there's eight, 900,000 people outside, like people are going to talk about that, you know, and that probably has more impact downstream than, you know, if you're in a different city every night. So, um, I think my brother and I are probably not as mature from a business modeling standpoint at that time. And if we had known what we known today, like maybe we would have done three month pop-ups and, you know, core markets for the first couple of years and built it out that way. Um, but again, I think luck and fortune, you know, with that first location ended up being the right decision. Hmm. Yeah. My next question was like, if you could give yourself one advice on business with everything you know now, to like a 15, 20 year old you, like what advice would you give? Wow. Um, I would, the advice would be to pay more attention to what's happening behind the business, meaning in your P&L and what's the actual kind of uh, financial strength of your business and not so much on the outward appearance of the business meaning the marketing and the likes and the you know all of that is like incredible and it's it's important but i think as a young entrepreneur a young business person you need to make sure you understand the back of house if you will right what's happening on a on a pnl what you know what's your balance sheet those are the unsexy things that i never wanted to you know learn and now my life is you know almost like 50 50 that and and marketing so it's something that i wish i would have been more um aware of earlier so i get so many advertisements from kolkata chai um on my instagram and i think you guys are doing a great job on like how you are advertising and i wanted to ask like what percentage of your revenue do you guys spend on advertising that's a great question um I can say it's in the range of 20 to 40%. So it's, I can give that range. Um, and that's across the whole business. So that's like brick and mortar, e-commerce, wholesale, everything. But we spend about uh, between 20 and 40%. Mm. So what is your, your goal with the business? Do you want to you know, scale it to having multiple locations? Want to find an exit or scale the e-commerce? Yeah, great question. I think the... North Star for us to is to become the household name for chai in the Western world. That's what we, you know, that's that's what we're building for. If that requires more locations, then we'll invest in that. If that requires being on grocery shelves, we'll invest in that. Um, right now, we're aiming to do that by laying the foundation, you know, through direct to consumer and and really making sure, you know, the num maximum number of households in in this country do get to experience Kolkata chai. Um, and then we'll, you know, evolve and kind of iterate based on what we, you know, what we see there. But yeah, I think our, our goal is to, to own that conversation around chai. So when you got your, uh, when you rented the store, 
up until that point and even right now did you bootstrap the company or you took external funding yeah so from 2018 which was the inception of KCC to the end of 2021 uh we bootstrapped the entire kind of operation which was very stressful and I don't know if I would do it again but we basically took the money that we had saved from our agency you know business and literally just transferred money from that one account into you know our our uh landlord's account to open that first location and then um you know built a profitable business on a month to month you know uh schedule to keep the lights on uh, it was very lean there was really no ability to scale that because there wasn't enough capital to to grow and to do anything with we were just kind of stuck you know inch by inch you know month by month day by day uh surviving and we were building brand and doing fun things outside of it right but it wasn't like uh there was no chance of being a household name it was very much you know just being a neighborhood thing um at the end of 2021 we raised our first round of uh funding so i raised uh one well, at that time it was 1 million total um and we raised a little bit after that but to date we've raised around a million dollars total um and we have never raised the series a or anything like that it's just been one uh one round so for people who might be starting right i think getting money from a vc is such a cool word and people like like the idea of raising money but what were like the pros and like what is the positives of raising money and what is like some of the drawbacks of like raising money Yeah, great question. So I I'll clarify for us. Um we have never raised venture capital. So we've raised from angels. Uh we've raised uh debt product, you know, we've we've we have debt on the business, but we've never raised from venture capital. So uh, and that was a very deliberate decision. So to answer the question, I think um the pros and cons of fundraising are at the surface level you're bringing capital in and you are essentially giving away a piece of your company in the process. and so the obvious con there is you know you if you keep raising money and you keep giving away parts of your company then at some point you know the equity left is either going to be you know significantly diminished or it's it's not going to be significant compared to you know what you expected when you were first starting and so i think you know um especially venture capital has a lot of uh just predatory kind of ways of creating warrants or side agreements or these things that essentially if founders and companies don't hit certain metrics or they're not able to grow at a certain level they end up having to give up more equity than they expected. So I think um our reason to not raise venture was very deliberate. We knew that we needed a certain amount of capital to grow the business, but we also knew that we needed time to learn the business our in our own way and not be on somebody else's venture schedule, which is also another con. uh when you raise money you are expected to kind of grow and deliver results on somebody else's timeline because it's somebody else's money um what we did was we raised um angel which is basically high net worth individuals small funds um syndicates of people coming together to invest and <clears throat> that was something that excuse me i didn't know was even possible some one of my kind of early mentors reached out to me and was like look you can grow this business and raise capital you don't have to raise venture you can raise angel and you can have a little bit more flexibility you can get the time that you need to build the business but 
you can be more than just a neighborhood cafe. And that conversation was really important to me because before that I was like, I don't want to raise money because I don't want to ever give up control. You know, the control, the ability to do things our way, to be able to have the credibility as a brand, those things are all possible when it's my brother and I kind of, you know, in the trenches every day. That doesn't happen when you know, ABC Capital comes in and makes everything look shiny, but now, you know, they really tell you what they, you can and can't do. Um, so we raised an angel round of a million dollars. It was very, very difficult at that time because uh, we don't come from that world. You know, we don't come from a, a family with, you know, connections or, you know, people call friends and family. I'm like, what family do you have that's ra- helping <laughs> you raise around? Because, you know, I tried. No, I didn't even try. I, I was just like, what am I going to do? You know what I mean? Like it, it wasn't even like, it wasn't even a conversation, you know? So the, there's moments where you have to really think outside of what you've been conditioned to believe through media and all this stuff about, Hey, raise a friends and family round or, you know, go pitch these. It's no, it's really hard. I remember my brother and I were very up and down during that process because you'd get rejected by somebody and they tell you this, you know, the reason why they're not investing in you. And you're like, holy, like, I didn't even think that that was something that I could get rejected for. Does that make sense? Like they're telling you things about your business that A, may or may not be true, but you're just not thinking about it that way, you know? Um, and it can be very demoralizing. Yeah, I have a lot of examples. I'm just trying to sort through <laughs> kind of which ones I can say, which ones I can't. I have two examples that I'll, I'll share and, and I'd love to get these cut up so that I can share them on my social media because I remember how demoralized I felt. So um, I had a chance to pitch um, the founder of one of the most notorious kind of DTC companies, a company that launched early, went public, is almost like an iconic direct-to-consumer company in many ways. And I remember pitching him and uh he had a friend with him and they were just like they they were interested in meeting and his friend was like hey i'm a customer of kcc i actually come here quite often i was like great like this is exciting like this might be huge and the entire meeting they just like nagged me and were just completely disinterested and just like were giving me all the reasons why this business would not work and i was like I I didn't know what to think, you know, besides being completely demoralized. And I didn't take it that personally because I, I didn't, their attitude was just very dismissive and it just, you know, I was like, all right, these guys aren't interested. I can move on. Uh, And this, this guy, the founder tweeted a couple of weeks later, he was like, I really wish someone would start like a chai cafe. Wouldn't that be a great concept in America? And I was like, what? I was like, what? And I always remember that experience because in that moment I felt like we had the worst company in the world you know and I felt like we had the the crappiest you know small little cafe in the world um this year you know we're projected to be an eight-figure brand and I'm like oh yeah it wasn't the demoralizing experience that I thought it was it was just a learning experience um so that was one that you know as as a takeaway for all young people or just people raising money in general you can't let one experience kind of define your entire uh you know, entire journey. Uh, the second experience that I have, this was another one of those uh, just like formative fundraising experiences. I had a small family office, basically. They're super interested. They have this text from this guy. It's like, hey, we're in for X amount of money. And it was, you know, significant, you know, six figure, mid six figures. He's like, we're in. We just want to have a call with our team. You know, let's let's set it up and, and get it started. And I was like, great. 
And on that call, one person from their team, again, was just like completely negging the entire business. He, you know, you guys have a commodity business. Anybody could do this on Amazon. Like there's nothing special about this. You know, community can't scale this, this, this. And I was like, okay, you know, like, all right, I'm not going to, you know, I, you just got to listen in those moments. And uh, again, feeling very demoralized. Obviously they didn't invest. And I remember going from thinking, wow, we're going to have, you know, X amount of money on our cap table committed to now being like, okay, well that just completely evaporated, you know? And, and the reasons that these people were not investing were not good reasons. There was just in their own head about what, you know, they thought the business was. And I use those examples as reminders for anybody thinking about fundraising or going back out to fundraise that, you know, one experience doesn't define, um, the outcome of your raise or the outcome of your company. And I think I'll end with not having to fundraise or not caring about fundraising is the most powerful and empowering thing that I think founders can really dial into. Um, currently, you know, we're in a position where we don't need to fundraise. Uh, we have, uh, you know, we've built a healthy cash balance. You know, we've been profitable uh, for the last four months and, of course, you know, everyone's, everyone's reaching out. Um, all the venture funds are reaching out now. And a lot of, you know, a lot of notable people are reaching out to invest and, you know, we're not being dismissive of it, but I think we are as founders, my brother and I are understanding this is where the true leverage is, is not needing to raise and being able to take capital on your own terms, because that's what, you know, builds a long-term business. That is so impressive. I mean, I worked in a couple of startups and one of my CEO actually got like let go by the board. So you have to be careful about a lot of stuff. Uh, but I want to ask one more question. So we both come from like South Asian family and like I was born, I mean, I was raised here and especially in our families, they expect us to be doctors and engineers. We're both software engineers. But a lot of times like we kind of isolate our dreams, which might be like being a singer or being a podcaster. And it is really difficult to, do something you love and also make your parents proud, right? And for you and your brother, you're both entrepreneurs. And I'm sure it took a long time for you guys to actually get to that point where your parents might be like, you know, they'll be fine. Like they're doing well. Um, like how did you deal with your parents uh, or if you had to deal with your parents, like questioning your decisions of being entrepreneurs or for you, like being an artist and uh, like to now, like how do they feel about your journey? Yeah. I mean, very real question. I could probably, you know, I could, I know I could speak about this for hours. Um, we went through, I think what everyone and you know, every traditional kind of immigrant family goes through, which was parents doubting, you know, wondering, um, nagging, if you will, you know, just, just being very kind of confused at the path, um, that I chose as a, you know, as elder sibling. And then, you know, that my brother ended up choosing, um, I, I will say for, con I give my parents a lot of credit. They've never been forceful with me in other ways that I've seen in my own community where, you know, it's like, no, you are doing this. I'm signing you up for law school or whatever. It's like that pressure from my parents was never there. They, they were definitely confused and unhappy and, you know, um, comparing me to whoever, you know, golden boy in the, in the community was doing whatever. And, you know, I'm not going to say anything, but yeah, like there was that, but my parents never forced my brother and I to do anything. And I give them a lot of credit for that. Um, and I don't know where that came from. I think they just, 
you know, they understood that in this country, you can't really do that. Or they understood that my child's happiness is probably worth more than, you know, their occupation. And just having that foresight to not be forceful or, you know, nasty about those things. I give my parents a lot of credit. Um, I have a theory on this, but essentially I think what's happened to our generation is that so many of us were just kind of conditioned to take what our parents told us and do you know, the things that they told us or that they wanted us or that expectation was so heavy that a lot of folks in our generation never really had a chance to critically think for themselves and to really actually think about what do I want for me, not for other people. What do I want for me? And as a result, like, can I discern when something is actually good for me or bad for me? Like, do I have the ability to actually critically think outside of the expectations levied by my, by my family or by my community? And again, I think the way, you know, we grew up, the way we were raised, um, they, you know, they think times, things were tough. And so I think critical thinking was like the only thing that we did have was like, you know, I had to think about, well, if I want to afford this, what do I need to do? I need to go work. Or if I want to, you know, go do this music thing, but I don't want my parents to find out, I got to find a way to put all that together. And it was just like always being independent of their expectations from a very young age. I, I think anybody can do that if they really want to. It takes some kind of reconditioning for for a lot of people in our community, but you have to be independent of your of your family or your community's expectations. And I think the way to remind yourself of this is to look back through people in your in your family, uncles, cousins, aunties, people that just never had a chance to be themselves because they just let the weight of their the expectations kind of crush them. You know, and that was just a life that I wasn't willing to lead. And so grateful for my parents for never being forceful, but also fully keep my parents accountable for never really believing what was happening until now, you know, where it's like, yeah, last three, four years, it's been, um, you know, a hockey stick of growth and they can kind of see what's happening. And today, obviously they're extremely proud. You know, they're, uh, we were in the New York times yesterday and, you know, my mom probably she got more texts than I did, you know, about it. My dad was like, I was getting out of the gym and, you know, so-and-so was texting me about it. Um, I think the feedback that they get from their community, right? The people that matter to them, their friends, their family, like they're, they're seeing so much that they're like, wow, well, something has to be going on. Um, and we take a lot of joy in that. I think, you know, for my brother and I, the biggest joy and the biggest upside of building this company has just been to be able to share this with our parents and, you know, to be able to share multiple cafe locations or just like, you know, oh, like my mom texted me, like my friend sent me a screenshot of Mindy Kaling at your cafe. Like, is this real? Like, did she come? I was like, yeah, I guess, you know, I guess it's mom's real, but like, you know, my mom gets to be a part of that. I think she's really excited about those moments. I think that's like giving your parents that is very special. Um, because you can give them money and you, you know, you guys know all this, like money doesn't solve a lot of things. You know, you can give them time, time. They're always going to want more time. But if you can give them the sense of accomplishment and the sense of like, wow, we, you know, took a lot of risks for our kids to be here and they did something that was meaningful. I think that uh, goes a long way. So I could talk about this all day, but I, I think I'll, I'll always say, do not let the expectations or the, you know, responsibilities of family and community crush who you really are because you don't get to do life again and you don't get to reset those expectations once you're you know in your 20s and 30s it just becomes really hard so um yeah 
that's that's my that's my two cents. That is so powerful and takes a lot of guts to not let the expectations of community crush you. Uh I know we're only here for an hour, but if people want to find you, uh reach out to you like where can they find you? Yeah, uh come to Kolkata chai, get some chai. Um I am <laughs> yes. uh available on social media across everything. My handle is the same. It's Ani Hustles, A N I H U S T L E S. And uh folks can always go to the Kolkata chai website, hit the contact form, it'll find its way to me somehow some way. Um yeah, mm-hmm. it's the best way. Cool. It's perfect, man. Thanks. Thanks once again for your time, Ani. Absolutely. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to our podcast till now. I hope it added value in your life and if it did, please subscribe to our channel. It will help us grow and bring more incredible guests. Thank you.